0: Hello and welcome, I'm Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the Bookshelves of Folks India, where we speak to authors and discuss the journey of writing their book and insights from their stories. Now, this book came to me a few months back and some of the cases really stumped me. I mean, at least as a woman, it was heartbreaking to read some of the stories, uh, which I'll mention them later in the episode, and obviously the judicial system around us is moving in a manner which begs the question on our freedom of speech on many days. So today I have invited Chintan Chandrachur, who is a lawyer based out of London, to discuss his book, The Cases That India Forgot. Now, before I get started with the episode, I want to introduce you to Manswini Kaushik, the editor of this show, and she's been our editor since the first episode. I'm sorry that I haven't mentioned her before, but please say hello to her on Twitter and give her a big shout out. And please like, subscribe, and follow us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever platform that you prefer, but do not forget to hit that button. It really counts. Now let me go back to the show and thank you so much, Shintan, for coming on this episode and let's discuss your book. In the preface, you've written that, you know, on several occasions, the courts have remained silent and failed to prevent these misadventures. And on still other occasions, the courts have created, catalyzed or contributed to these misadventures. This book includes many examples of circumstances in which courts have abdicated or misused their responsibility in this way. What is your view on judiciary in these recent times when you've seen a lot of failure when it comes to judiciary? For example, in the latest might be the, the entire migrant workers case and Supreme Court declined to hear it uh, until stability comes into play. Why is it that we see the judiciary is a step behind these days? Or do you think, or do you think I'm wrong in this assessment?
1: In short, I think your assessment is correct. Um, And it's difficult to diagnose the reasons for which the courts are, as you've said, a step behind um, the social curve. Uh, But I could come up with two reasons for this. Uh, The first is that the court is conscious um, of exercising its role robustly in cases that are either politically sensitive, um, and I use political not in the party political sense, but in the sense of the wider political landscape. Or they are um, sensitive about exercising their role robustly in in cases where um, their decision would be against the grain of public opinion. Uh, Now, I accept, so that's one possible explanation. Uh, There's always a little bit of a tricky balance to be struck between making decisions on the one hand that are a step ahead of the social curve, leading society if you like, rather than following society. And on the other hand, ensuring that your decisions are capable of implementation. Uh, because remember, if a court's decisions are continuously not implemented or are ignored over time, the court can lose its, its legitimacy. So I mean, I, I accept that there is a balance to be struck there. But my concern is with where the court has decided to strike that balance. Uh, In my view, the court has struck a balance that is far too conservative. Again, I use the word conservative with a small c rather than a capital C. Um, And that it could be slightly more aggressive uh, in the way in which it strikes this balance. The second possible explanation for which the courts may be behind the curve um, is the way in which the court manages um, rostering. Um, and let's remember that the Supreme Court is, is a very overburdened court. It's really more a Supreme Court of Appeal uh, for the country than a classical European constitutional court that deals with a select group of cases. Now, because the Supreme Court has to deal with tens of thousands of cases each year, That naturally means that some cases are more important than others. Not every case can be considered equally significant and prioritized. And there clearly seems to be a problem in terms of determining which cases need to be prioritized and which cases don't. Um, And from, from my perspective, the court's primary responsibility is to protect fundamental rights from violation by state action, whatever that is, whether that's through legislation, policy, government action, et cetera. Um, And rostering is not really a new problem. This has existed for a a long period of time. And one of the cases, for instance, that I uh, discuss in my book, which is the Naga People's peoples Movement for Human Rights case, uh, involved a delay of virtually two decades after the initial petitions were filed. So this is an age-old problem. Um, so those are the two possible um, explanations for which the court is uh, behind the social curve, and in, in my view.
0: True. Now, coming back to your book, why did you choose these 10 cases? And you know, which one do you find intriguing the most? And also, if you could tell me that, how did you go about researching about the, the cases that you wanted to put?
1: Um, So it wasn't easy to pick the final list um, of 10 cases. For me, the key consideration was that the cases that I selected had a significance that extended beyond the legal questions that arose for the court's consideration. So, of course, there were important issues of law that arose for the court's determination. But aside from those the cases involved also some other political or socially significant issues. Um, And the broader context being that, of course, courts are part of society and reflect society's best and worst, unfortunately, um, impulses. In terms of the second part of your question, which of those cases I found the most intriguing? That's another hard one, but I would probably pick the R.D. Bajaj case uh, for the reason that it offers a microcosm in a sense of all the social prejudices and the institutional decays uh, reflective of the times. Uh, and just by way of context, this is a case in which a senior civil servant, um, R.D. Bajaj, Rupan Deval Bajaj, the super cop skill, uh, essentially of molestation or sexual assault, and, and that case I find interesting for a number of reasons, but let me, let me just give you a couple. Uh, the first is that the, through its history, from the moment of its inception to its conclusion, the case is marked by patriarchy. Uh, so for instance, from the time that Mrs. Bajaj makes the complaint, uh, all through the process, people are trying to convince her to withdraw the complaint, uh, to just ignore it saying that this happened, saying that this is expected of men, and so on. Uh, and even when Gil was convicted, all national newspapers at the time, this is not very long ago, this is as recently as 2005, leading English national newspapers took editorial lines lamenting his conviction um, and lamenting the fact that this national hero uh, has been prosecuted and convicted for um, an offense of sexual assault. In addition to that, the case also involves some interesting uh, class biases. Mrs. Bajaj constantly emphasizes through the proceedings and at the end as well that she's not an ordinary woman on the roadside. Ultimately, she was herself quite a powerful uh, woman. She was an IAS officer and she, and she, as she said, she had thousands of people under her reporting to her, men reporting to her. Um, And so there was also a class element, because of course, the flip side of that was, if it wasn't someone with that privilege, could they ever even have secured the token of justice that um, Mrs. Bajaj did? Um, And finally, also on institutional decay, the case itself took several years to decide. It took almost 18 years to come to a close. It began in 1988 and concluded ultimately in 2005. Um, so that's why I uh, I consider that that was one of the more interesting cases to research and to write about.
0: Okay. Uh, but there's one case that I'm taking from uh, the Mrs. Bajaj's case. I'll take this forward. Uh, there's a story in... Uh, one of the chapters that you have written is about Mathura's story now Mathura it is the case which you call as Tukaram versus the Supreme Court where Mathura was raped inside the police station and even though that was the case uh, you've written very lucidly about how a first the villagers had aggregated and they wanted to uh, burn down the police station and then there was an FIR that was written and uh, the case then moved Uh, To other city and from there it went to high court where high court literally said that uh, that she must have consented or she must have uh, the submission in the case and then it went to supreme court and then it opened again. There's a huge I mean there's so many years that got wasted in this entire case or rather let's say that you know it took so many years to get her justice. Uh, Could you explain that case and how uh, how we see uh, rape cases being charged in India.
1: Sure. So, um, Tukaram versus State of Maharashtra was another case that I found fascinating and uh, considered it worth covering in the book. And to recollect briefly the story, the case involves the rape of an Adivasi girl uh, who lived in a town called Desai Ganjan, in Maharashtra the feature of the case that I find most striking is the fact that she battled the odds to file a police complaint and take the complaint to its logical conclusion. Um, And the resolve and the determination that she showed to do that, uh, I find just remarkable. Now there's something also that is unusual about this case when you compare it to the other cases that I've covered in the book, which is that regrettably, nobody takes notice of the case at the time that it occurred. So if you take a look through the leading national newspapers at the time, there's little or no coverage um, of the rape of Mathura, despite it being a heinous crime committed by an officer of the state, um, a police officer uh, at the time. And it's only after the Supreme Court decision, so imagine you have these appeals as you were describing it, all the way through up to the Supreme Court, and it's only after the Supreme Court's decision that you have a group of academics, uh, including O.P.endra Bakshi, Lothika Sarkar, and others, that write a letter to the Chief Justice um, criticizing the judgment, that people take notice of it for the first time, and then it's finally reported on um, and discussed and criticized in the mainstream um, media. What was remarkable about that case was But even the most basic legal protections um, for complainants, such as, for example, anonymity, when you make a complaint, were absent at the time, allowing, of course, for um, victim shaming. Uh, And the case prompted a law commission report and several important changes to the law, uh, particularly to deal with custodial situations. So to address circumstances that Mathura found herself in, uh, where she was raped by a police officer, in very difficult circumstances, essentially in the unlawful custody of the state. Um, But the problem is, so the Mathura case, even though Mathura herself doesn't secure justice, results in institutional changes, results in amendments to the law. Um, But what's fascinating is that even though the law changes, mindsets don't change as, as quickly. And so, even when the law is being passed in response to the Mathura case and the Law Commission's report, several MPs at the time, at the law at the time that the law was being passed, um, make statements that reek of prejudices uh, and say things to the effect that uh, women who are raped live the lives of prostitutes, etc. And if you if you look through the parliamentary debates of the time, they're replete with um, statements of, of that kind. Um, so for that reason as well, I found this case fascinating, and therefore chose to um, include it as one of the chapters in the book.
0: Okay, but why is it that you know? It, it, I mean, uh, to give a timeline to the listeners, uh, the case I think belongs to I think 1974 or six. Uh, it's way back in those days that we are talking about, and I think the justice came some eight years later. Uh, not the justice, but at least uh, it saw some logical conclusion around eight years later, and then Nirbhaya case happened. There are so many rape cases uh, that have happened. I mean, why is it that it takes so long uh, to get justice in cases, in, in at least rape cases? Does it take more time for closure in these kind of cases?
1: Um, it's difficult to say whether um, it takes longer in these cases compared to others. Uh, but I think it's 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 fair to say that it takes far too long than it ought to in cases such as this. Um, I mean, part of it is, of course, there is a due process element to it in that someone that's accused of a serious offense um, must be given the opportunity, of course, to defend himself or herself and must be given the right to appeal and, um, and so on. Uh, but I don't think that that provides a, a sufficient explanation. And I don't think that, although on the one side, I say that the Mathura case is exceptional for the reasons that I've described. Um, on the other side, it's it's not, in a sense, because this reflects the experience that many, many women would have faced, uh, particularly in the smaller towns and villages, and particularly women that lack uh, privilege and access. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising if you go through archives to find several Mathura, uh, many of whom have, as I've said, not had, the, not had the resolve to actually pursue complaints, but those that have, have had to suffer a similar fate and have had to wait years, if not decades, um, for a judicial decision or for a final judicial decision
0: to the first portion of your book where you have this very interesting story, the Minerva Mills story. I would like you to take our listeners through the story because I really found it intriguing.
1: Sure. So this case arose in somewhat unusual circumstances, spanning actually three governments. So what happens is that you have what is possibly the Supreme Court of India's most famous case in its uh, history, which is the Keshwanan case, which listeners I'm sure are likely to be familiar with, uh, from 1973, uh, where the court holds um, that any amendment, any constitutional amendment that seeks to destroy or alter or abrogate what they call the basic structure or the essential features of the constitution uh, will itself be unconstitutional. Uh, and what happens as a response to this judgment is that the Indira Gandhi government at the time passes amendments to the constitution seeking to reverse the court's judgment. Now, as it's well known, what happens is you have the emergency declared, the Janta government comes into power, um, and the Indira Gandhi government, the Indira Gandhi um, government and the Congress party loses the election. Now, when the Janta government comes into power, The Janata government itself makes several amendments to the constitution, seeking in part to reverse some of the Congress um, amendments, but it's unable to do so in full. It it can do so only to some extent. Um, And one of the things that the Janata government does is to delete the fundamental right to property. So the right to property from that moment on is no longer recognized as a fundamental right, but is are downgraded, if you like, to an ordinary constitutional right. Um, The greatest constitutional litigator of the day, Nani Palkiwala, uses this case as a vehicle in the following way. You have a um, mill called the Minerva Mill uh, from close to Bangalore, which is nationalized. And Palkiwala could have challenged the nationalization of the mill either by Challenging the Janta amendments to the Constitution or by challenging the Congress amendments to the Constitution. You might well say that, in fact, it would have been logical for him to challenge the Janta amendments because this directly relates to the right to property. But what he, in a stroke of um, masterful litigation strategy, if you like, does is to use this case as a vehicle to challenge the Congress amendments instead of the Janta amendments. Um, and actually, by the time that this case is heard, the Janta government is also lost. So now we have Government 3, which is a caretaker Charan Singh government uh, that is in power. And the rumor at the time was that the uh, advocates that were instructed to appear on behalf of the government were asked to defend the government, the nationalization in general terms, but were not asked to robustly defend the Congress amendments to the Constitution or were asked to go light, if you like, on the defense of those amendments. Um, and so you have this very peculiar situation where there's an entirely different government. The government defending those Congress government amendments on a rather weak footing. Uh, and Palkiwala using this case as a conduit to challenge the Congress government amendment. Um, and what the court decides in this case is, is that the Congress government amendments Uh, to the Constitution which sought to reverse the Supreme Court's judgment in Keshwanan are themselves unconstitutional and therefore Keshwanan would be uh, restored, if you like, or would be institutionalized uh, within India's constitutional um, fabric. Um, And what's interesting about this case is, I mean, I include this in my book of forgotten cases, less for the reason that it's forgotten, and I'd say more for the reason that it's overshadowed by the Keshwanand case, uh, which of course everyone remembers. In my view, Minerva Mills is as important to institutionalizing the canonical basic structure doctrine in India um, as the Keshwanand case was. Um, And that's why I've um, included Minerva in the the book. Uh, And there's of course an interesting postscript to all of this. Is that which is that there was a quote unquote bench divided, as one press described a press report described it uh, during the Minerva Mills case, where there's a disagreement between the then Chief Justice and the future Chief Justice in relation to how the case was conducted, and that also makes for a fascinating narrative.
0: True. There's one thing I wanted to understand. Uh, these days, we see a lot of these cases where uh, people have written something online. Uh, people. Uh, people have their views that they post on Facebook, Twitter, or any of these social media platforms. and Then there is this case that gets filed against them. Uh, Recently, the Supreme Court has also taken a note on a tweet that was sent out by Prashant Bhushan. Do you think there will be an increase in the culture that we'll see that the court is going to take cognizance of what people are writing on social media?
1: The logical, the logical conclusion is that there could well be an increase simply because of the increased activity and the exponential increase in social media activity that's taking place um, in India as well as globally. Of course, it is something that ought not to take place. Um, I mean, the court should, courts in general should be loath to exercise any power of contempt for uh, criticism of the court in general or criticism of judges in particular. I should say that this is my my personal view. Um, And and, and for that reason, I think courts need to think long and hard about whether this power should exist in the first place. And even if it does exist, in which circumstances it ought to be exercised. Uh, Because ultimately, what we're really, what this boils down to is preserving the court's institutional legitimacy and preserving respect for the court and the way in which you preserve your legitimacy is not through the exercise of contempt bars or not necessarily by hauling up those that challenge or criticize you but on the other hand through the force of your reasoning and through the eloquence of your judgment um, and there's, um, and for that reason, my view is that courts should be extremely li- reluctant uh, to invoke the contempt power in, in in such instances.
0: Sure. Thank you so much for your time today.